All right. Well, good morning. Hey, happy early Thanksgiving, you guys. If it hasn't been said to you yet, there you go. Uh, as Christian mentioned, if you're new here, my name's Billy. I'm the executive pastor on staff, and it really is a joy to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, I, know, I know I'm like here basically every Sunday morning, but you know what I mean. Um, and just wanted to say I love y'all. So glad to be here. And thanks, man. Oh, and quick shout out to the live stream. I believe my grandma's watching, so I got to give her a shout out. Uh, right, right after the service, not right after, a little bit after the service, we're heading out. And I'm sure many of you guys are as well, just traveling to see family. And so I'm excited for that. Um, but we are wrapping up our foundation series today. So this is the last message in this really, it's been an exciting and fun series. So if you've been tracking with us, we're wrapping it up today. We've been talking about <clears throat> these different doctrines of the Christian faith and just exploring what does it mean to be a Christian? What do, what do Christians believe? What's at the core? What's the fundamentals? It's been a lot of fun. We've had a lot of guest speakers. And today, we're going to wrap it up by simply not really actually talking about a specific doctrine, but just wrapping it up and in in answering the question, well, what's the purpose of all these doctrines? What's the purpose of all that? And so we're going to start by opening up to the book of John. So if you could, you could turn with me to John chapter 8. <clears throat> It'll also be on the screen if you want to follow along there. All right, I'm going to start in verse 31, just a couple verses. It says this. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. You will be free indeed. So this kind of highlights the purpose of truth. We kind of saw it there. and We're just going to unpack it this morning. I'm kind of going to just pound it home. That the purpose of truth is that we would be set free from sin. That is the purpose of it. <clears throat> and when we look at the, the, all the problems that we experience as a human race, it's, we can point at sin and just say, that is the greatest problem of them all. It is sin that brought death into this world. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were children of wrath. Colossians 1 says we were alienated, hostile to God. And because of sin, death came in. It says in James uh, chapter 1 that desire gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown up, gives birth to death. So sin is the greatest enemy we face here on this earth. It's our biggest problem. And with that backdrop in mind, we can then answer the question, well then, what is the purpose of truth? And we read it here in, in John chapter eight. Freedom. Freedom from sin and freedom to fellowship and commune with God the way God intended. That's the purpose of truth. And so, and that's actually why one of the core messages of Jesus and the apostles was repentance from sin. In fact, that's how Jesus started his ministry, right? In Matthew chapter 4, 17, it says that from that moment on, he began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his first message, like right out of the gate. <laughs> and that, you know, that was also the message of his forerunner, John the Baptist. It was repentance from sin. It was the message of Peter uh, the day of Pentecost after they received the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, 38, they said, what do we do? He says, repent and receive the Holy Spirit. 
And if you read the epistles in the book of Acts, that's Paul's message as well. It says in, Ma- in, in Acts chapter 20, verse 21, that Paul did not stop proclaiming repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. He wouldn't stop re- proclaiming that. And so, you know, we think starting off our ministry uh, just right out of the gate saying repent from sin, you know, is not the best way to make friends or to be liked, typically. You know, like the first thing you say is what you're doing is wrong, you need to turn around. <clears throat> um, but that is exactly what Jesus did and that's what he continued to do. And so if we want to be set free by the truth, then it has to begin by truly hearing this message on repentance. That's where we begin. <clears throat> and I wanna point out a truth. Well, I guess we're talking a lot about truth today, but another truth is that it can be quite uncomfortable for people to continuously hear about repentance from sin. Like when someone is preaching repentance from sin, over time, it can, it can, people don't wanna hear it anymore because it pricks our conscience and it makes us feel a certain sense of discomfort, doesn't it? We don't like to be told we're wrong. We love being right. I love being right. But oftentimes, if not most of the times, we're wrong. We do not like that. It pricks our conscience. And as humans, we are just so drawn to the things that make us comfortable. Comfort is like esteemed. It, it is an unspoken value in our society today. We're all guilty of it in a way. I and mean, it's not terrible. It's not wrong in a sense. But we sometimes value comfort over anything else. I mean, I, I'm, I'm this way with the cold weather. I mean, I'm like looking forward to winter. And I'm like, I don't like the cold. It makes me uncomfortable. You know, I, I'd rather be inside by the fire. So I'm, we're all guilty of it in some level. But we can elevate it as a society to the point where we put comfort at the top at the cost of truth. It's like, I, you know, there are so many examples of this. And just to point out a couple of really obvious and relevant modern ones uh, today is that the issue of gender. It's like, well, it's, there's an obvious truth there, but for the sake of comfort, I'm gonna lie to myself or lie to someone else just so I don't have a moment of discomfort pointing out some very obvious things in society. Because we value truth. We don't wanna make someone feel awkward or uncomfortable and it makes us feel discomforting. And to the point where it's like, even if we're just sharing anything or you're hearing someone share something discomforting, right? It's, it could be a top priority in that moment just to fix it because your uncomfortable, your, your feeling of discomfort is making me uncomfortable. So for selfish reasons, I want you to feel better so that I don't have to feel the discomfort that you're feeling. So I, you know, that's why we've become much more of a fix-it society rather than an empathetic one, right? Because we don't like that feeling. Now, it's easy to point to society and say it's out there, but I wanna, what we're gonna talk about today is that it's, it's in the church. It applies to the pulpit as well. And I, maybe I started this message by saying I love you guys because I'm, I'm bringing a word, okay? <laughs> uh, the Bible warns us that in the last days, people will seek after the things they want to hear. They will have tickling ears, the Bible says. They'll find the things that make them feel good and they'll sit under those things. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter four, starting in verse one, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure a sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. 
This, is, this just highlights the depravity of humankind, right? We want what we want, and sometimes that becomes our highest priority. We are enslaved to our own desires. Man, do we need the cross, right? But this isn't new. I wanna mention this is like not new to this day and age. This happened in the Old Testament as well. If you look, I mean, half of the book of Jeremiah is essentially this issue. In Jeremiah's day, there were false prophets prophesying peace when there was no peace, saying to the people of God, God is happy with you when God's like, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm frustrated. <clears throat> and it was the, the reason they would preach peace is because it comforted them. It gave them this thing they wanted, which was comfort. But it was a false comfort, and it only led to future and further discomfort and chaos. And any preacher who does the same today is offering a false comfort, and they are false prophets and false teachers. And we need to recognize that. If they preach only that which you want to hear, that's a wolf in sheep's clothing. What is a wolf? A wolf is out to get for himself. You know, if you think of an actual wolf, they're in the flock to get something from the sheep. And in Christian world, the wolves are typically out for two things, honor and money. And so they'll preach what you want to hear because you'll like them. Or they'll preach what you want to hear because then you'll increase your giving or something ridiculous. This is not new. So let me read a couple passages from Jeremiah. In chapter five, verse 30, these won't be on the screen. I just want you to listen to these. It says, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land that the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule on their own authority and my people love it so. Chapter six, verse 13, from the, from the least of them to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain and from the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed my broken, the brokenness of my people superficially saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Chapter 14, but ah, Lord God, I said, Look, the prophets are telling them, you will not see the sword, nor will you have famine, but I will give you lasting peace in this place. Then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them, nor commanded them, nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision. Chapter 23, verse 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you will have peace. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of their own heart, they say calamity will not come upon you. But who has stood in the counsel of the Lord that he should see and hear his word? Who has given heed to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord has gone forth in wrath. <laughs> okay, that's a lot. But here we see that the false prophets and the people of God had this like nice unspoken agreement between them. The people wanted to feel comfort. The prophets wanted to be liked and receive honor. So it was like, hey, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You give us what we want, I'll give you what you want. And that doomed them. That the high esteem for comfort crushed them. And we, so we have to learn how to embrace uncomfortable things, especially when it comes to truth, especially when it comes to sin and spirituality. So think of a doctor. Imagine you just got your body scanned by a doctor and he found a tumor but because he didn't want to make you feel uncomfortable, he, t he goes to you and says, hey, scan came back, you look great. Be happy, everything's fine, there's no sickness in you, go home, you, go home, you, you high five your family, like I'm healthy, this is great, that doctor's so awesome, so personable, recommend him. Does that doctor love you? No, he loves himself, he couldn't care less about you. He loves himself. Because if he did love you, 
He would tell you the truth, which is, hey, there's a tumor. It needs to be removed immediately because it's gonna kill you. Now that's uncomfortable, but for a moment, right? We're all thankful for that. Any doctor who does otherwise is gonna lose his license or worse, right? We're thankful for doctors who tell the truth. It should be the same when it comes to just hearing truth in general. There's an example of this in the gospels with Jesus. And it's about the story of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. And this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he, you know, he poses the question to him, hey, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, you know, why do you call me good? Only God is good, you know, obey the commandments. And the young man's response is this in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 20. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. It was because Jesus loved this young man so much that he was willing to tell the truth, willing to put him in a very uncomfortable position and face reality. The reality being for this man that money and greed had so gripped his heart that the only way for him to be saved was for for amputation in a way. Just cut it off completely. Give everything away so it doesn't infect the rest of your soul. Give it all away. It's the only way to be saved. Cut it off completely. Jesus was clearly willing for people to walk away, clearly willing to be disliked and make people feel uncomfortable because he actually loved them. He loved them with a deep love. And he knew the seriousness of sin. So he, he talked about the seriousness of sin. Do we recognize the seriousness of sin here? I mean, we, we would look at this rich young ruler's life and almost applaud it. If we look at it on the outside, I mean, we, we see the, the whole story from this perspective, but if we're in that day and age, he's, he's young, he's successful. He is, apparently he goes to church, outwardly obedient, He's involved. I mean, it's like, wow, actually this guy should be leading the church in some way, shape or form. Outwardly, there's no, nothing against him. But inwardly, with this hidden sickness that was eating away at him, and that was the love of money. It's like looking at someone who does have cancer and saying, but, but, look, at the, but look how healthy he looks. He's tall, he's got muscles, he's, you know, he can run fast. It's like, yeah, but there's a cancer in there. It's like that with sin. We have to recognize that. Sin is like that. And we have to be willing to endure the doctor's knife, so to speak, if we wanna be saved from sin. And it's that word saved that maybe has tripped us up a little bit in the past. And so I want us to look a little closer at that word saved. Do y'all know what the first promise is in the New Testament? Just think about it. You don't have to answer. Put y'all in an awkward position of like, do I shout it out or... Yeah, it has to do with the name of Jesus. It's in Matthew chapter one, verse 21, when, when the angel's speaking to Joseph and he's giving him the name Jesus. And it says this in Matthew 1, 21, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Maybe you'll remember this now. It's the first promise in the New Testament where he will do something. We're calling his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. Is that what we're seeking to be saved from, is the question. Because when we think, uh, you know, typically Christians, when they hear the word saved, they only think of saved from hell, the penalty of sin, 
which is absolutely true and correct. But saved is beyond that. It goes deeper than that. There's actually multiple forms of saved. In other words, there's, there's, there's really three that we'll focus on. There's the penalty of sin, which you can be saved, on, saved from. There's the power of sin, which is the right now. And then there's the presence of sin, which is the future. You're saved from hell, saved unto holiness, saved into heaven, you can say. Or since we're still in the you know, series on doctrine, it is justification, sanctification, and glorification. Amen. And so when we put our faith in the blood of Jesus, we are justified. We are cleansed. When we come before God, not in our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus, our sin is wiped away. The penalty of sin is removed. Death is defeated. And now we are free from the fear of death. And we can actually say along with 1 Corinthians 15, 55, oh, death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? It is gone, it is removed. Why? Because the name of Jesus has saved me from the penalty of my sins. I'm free from that. Whether I live or die, I am the Lord's. It doesn't, it makes no difference to me. No, only, only the Christian can say that. But then we look ahead and we look to the future and we see that one day we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. That when Jesus Christ finally returns, you know, last week we talked about the doctrine of the future. It was so encouraging. And when we look to that day, then when he establishes the, the new heaven and the new earth, we'll say the very presence of sin is gone. Temptation, it is finally gone. It's, it's a thing of the past. And from that point on, forevermore, we are free. We don't have to worry about sin at all. It's dealt with. That's glorification. So the question is, what about the power of sin right now in our lives? It's the issue of sanctification. And we too oftenly, too oftenly, wow, too often mistake, mistakenly think that because we have the future covered and the penalty of sins paid for, that right now it doesn't really matter as much. <clears throat> you know, where it's, it's good to be free from sin, it's not, you know, sin is bad, but also if you sin, it's also okay. <laughs> grace, grace, no big deal. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Cheap Grace. It's basically the idea where if you sin, that is bad, but also at the same time, for some reason, it doesn't matter. It does matter. But there is a reality in this that, yes, if you sin, 1 John 1, 7, God is faithful and just to forgive you of sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Just confess it. He'll cleanse you, absolutely. And in fact, Proverbs 24, 16 says that the righteous may fall seven times, but they rise again. This is not about not sinning forever because God is patient. He will forgive you. There is an element of truth to that. If you sin, God will forgive you. We can find so much comfort in his patience in that. But the fruit of someone who is truly saved is that they are being saved from the power of sin in their lives right now. That's the evidence. Because there's reality here. If, if you're not being saved from the power of sin in your life right now, how are you so confident you've been saved from the penalty of sin? They are tied together. If, if, if sanctification isn't happening, how, are you sure you're justified? And I don't, you know, I don't, my intention is not to cause fear for your eternal position. So hear my heart. Like, I mean, unless it's warranted, honestly. Like, I don't want you to fear, but I also don't want to provide you a, a false comfort. I'd rather be the doctor that says, ah, you might need to get a second opinion. You need to take a closer look in that. There might be something there. I could be wrong, of course. I could be wrong. 
I want to be wrong. But hear my heart. Because if you're not, if you haven't, if you've been truly saved by grace, if you're under grace, that's another word we probably need to unpack. It means the sin is no longer reigning over you. Let me just read that to you in, in Romans chapter six, verse 16. Paul says this, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now we can understand that, right? I think a 10-year-old would read that and, and understand the plain meaning of that. Sometimes we overcomplicate things and overanalyze scripture. I think we can understand this. If I'm a slave to sin, I am not under grace. I'm under the law. The fruit of being under grace is that sin is no longer master over me. This is the meaning of grace. When we're saved by grace through faith, the proof of this is that sin has lost its power over us. We're no longer slaves. This doesn't mean you're, you're instantly free. It does mean you're not a slave anymore. You don't have to go. You may frequent the dungeon that you used to live in because it's familiar. There are mindsets and addictions and habits that might take 10 years to break free from. But the truth remains that the, the, the chains are off. The door's unlocked. You are free to go. Sin has no reign and no mastery over you any longer if you're under grace. There's a guy named Neil T. Anderson who, um, he wrote a book called The Common Made Holy. And in this, he exemplifies this principle through the illustration of slavery in American history. And he says, you know, slavery was abolished by the 13th Amendment on December the 18th in 1865. So he poses the question, on December 19th, how many slaves were there? In reality, zero. Like technically, zero. However, many still lived like slaves because one of two reasons, they never heard they were set free or they didn't believe it. Maybe it took months for word to reach them and they're like, no, that can't be true. Yeah. So they're still slaves. In reality, they're free. So being justified goes hand in hand with being sanctified. They are tethered together. Let me keep reading from Romans chapter six. It says, for sin shall no longer be master over you for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you, you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that th though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin, and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Knowing the truth sets us free from sin and it makes us slaves to righteousness. The power of sin was never meant to reign over the Christian. It was never meant to reign. This is the true meaning of grace. You know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, or Jesus says to Paul actually, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power 
is made perfect in weakness. It's his power to overcome sin. That's, that's what it means to be under grace. And from this place of being under grace, we are meant, the Christian is meant and intended to go from glory to glory, from one degree of freedom to another degree of freedom. This is our destiny as Christians. This is, this is when we mature, we become more and more like Jesus, more loving, more patient, more joyful, more holy, more bold, more courageous. We become more and more like Christ because that is our destination. We're simply just getting closer to our ultimate and final destination. We know from Romans chapter 8, 29, it says, we are predestined. We have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Again, we can understand that, right? The destination is Christ-likeness. That's where we're headed. And the more time goes by, the more we mature, we should be looking more like Christ. You know, if, if you know, I'm going to Austin later today, if, if, I'm, if that's my destination, how do I know if I'm on the right road? Pretty simple. I get closer over time. <laughs> over time, you know, a couple hours pass, if I'm like going further away, I'm like, I might be on the wrong road. You know, pretty simple. There's a road that leads to life. It's a narrow road, and the way you know you're on it is over time, you become more Christ-like. You become more like Christ. In Proverbs 4.18, it says like this. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. This is the mark of a true Christian, that their life is brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter until that day comes when Christ returns, and they're just like him. This is what it means to be a Christian. But sadly, many Christians are content not progressing, stopping to at a certain point in their walk with the Lord. Because usually it's because we feel like we're good enough. We, we look around, we compare ourselves amongst ourselves. We say, well, everyone's about right here. We're good. You know, that'd be like me stopping at Bucky's and being like, this place is nice. I'll just hang out here for the rest of my life. Because everyone else is here. It's like you, could, you could, that's a little city. You could make it happen. But that's not my destination. I would have missed it. You know, I, here, here, another example would be this. Parents who have children in school, I highly doubt there's any single parent in this room or anywhere that'd be content if their child got to a certain grade and stopped just because they felt like it was enough. Sixth grade, I can, mom, I can read, I can write, I know some history, I can do math. What more do you want from me, Mom. And then year after year, they're stuck in the sixth grade. You got a 30-year-old man in sixth grade. Do you see a problem with that? Now, we can understand that, you know, in the physical. But oftentimes, we can be blinded to our own spiritual development. And we get, well, decades go by. Oh, and, and we look back and say, well, last year, I was complaining a lot. This year, I'm still complaining. Last three years, I was struggling with greed and the love of money. This year, if I'm honest, I'm like, actually, I love money more. Say, whoa, hold on, church, you might be on the wrong road. On, Let me sound the alarm. It's just a little bit. Year after year, the children of God can be trapped in this thing called sin, and it just ought not to be. It doesn't need to be this way. So if sin is reigning, it might be because you just have never seen this before. Or just like, you know, the example of the 13th Amendment. It's like you just didn't know it, or you had a hard time believing it, which is another reality. If I said to you, if I said to a young man, you can be free from pornography, maybe at first like, no, that's too much. Well, okay, according to your faith, be it unto you. But if you believe, oh man, the power of Christ will fill you. You can be set free. You can. 
Okay, so all of that. Now, what about the doctrines? Here we go. When we look at the doctrines of the Christian faith, this backdrop, this, this freedom from sin needs to be on our horizon, needs to be what's in view. Because knowing the truth, the purpose of it is to be set free from sin. And so when we look at the doctrine of Christ, we see Jesus as fully God, as creator of the universe, as king of kings and Lord of lords, who has the whole world in the palm of his hand. But we also see him as fully man, who came and suffered. And Hebrews says he learned obedience from the things he suffered. And he died on the cross. And we see that because of that, he is our forerunner. He is our example. We can look to him and understand that because of the doctrine of Christ, I can follow him. I can be free from sin, just like he was. And then from there, we can, we can go to the, we need the doctrine of huma- humanity to recognize our fallen state. And if we don't, you know, frankly, we need to start here. If we don't recognize how weak and fallen we are, we have no hope. It has to start there. If we're unwilling to, to acknowledge our weakness, our sins, our failures, I can tell you in the name of Jesus, you will not have any hope for the future. <clears throat> because I'm just repeating what the Bible says. Because when we understand the doctrine of our fallen humanity, then we humble ourselves. And guess what? We'll go to the word of God who has the answers. And from the doctrine of the word, we'll be able to see like a mirror, it says in James, it reflects and it shows us the reality of who we are. But it, it serves as a light. It serves as food for our souls, for our spirits. And it's a sword. It's a weapon against the enemy. But we're not meant to do it alone. And so then there's the doctrine of the church where we, we, we find ourselves integrated into this thing called the body, where we sharpen one another, where we strengthen one another, where we encourage one another, just like an actual body does. Yeah. My arm helps my tummy by giving food to my mouth. And, and there's a lot that goes on. Yeah. We work together and together we can reflect and display the wisdom of God to the heavenly places. And then we have the doctrine of the future. When we know the future, when we know what's inevitable, what is guaranteed to happen at some point, it gives us sobriety and wisdom for today, and it gives us hope for tomorrow. And with all that, we can be set free from sin and more. All of this doctrine, <clears throat> all of this truth is to lead us to a life of freedom. Because if we just agree to these doctrines mentally, that's like eating food but not digesting it. It's like having food in your system, but it's not transforming into bone mass or muscle or tissue. There are too many bloated Christians. (laughs) You got the right food. It's kind of in you, but you're not really processing it. You're probably going to vomit one day. Like Something was wrong if that's what's happening. If it's not leading to life transformation, something's wrong. Doctrine is to lead us to freedom from sin and fellowship with God. This is the abundant life. In John chapter one, verse four, it says this, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He, his life was the light. Are you seeing this? Let me try to break it down. In the Old Testament, it was the written word that was the light. You know, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The light that they had was the written word. In the new It's this living life. It is life that we see in Jesus Christ. That's the light of men. It's the life, not just the doctrine of Jesus. Jesus didn't go around preaching what he believed just so he can gather a following of people who agree with him so he can feel good. He went around preaching what he believed so that people would be like him and live like he lived. 
There's a huge difference there. And so doctrine, even when it is accurate, is dead if it doesn't lead to life where, where the doctrine can be seen in the people of God. I mean, this is the type of church we wanna be where someone comes through these doors, they don't know all we believe in or all the doctrines, but they can say to themselves, I'm experiencing something different here and it's called life. I can't really, I don't know what they're all preaching and all this, but I experience life when I go to life group. There's life here. The life of God is in this place. That's what we wanna be. And if, if we don't have that, but we do have the doctrine, then, then we're just a corpse. The structure is there, but there's no life. A corpse is not gonna help you when you need help. It's there to talk about memories, reflection. It's good. But when you need physical help, that corpse will not stand up and, and provide strength. It's dead. And faith, this is how James puts it. Faith without actions is dead. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without deeds is dead. Just a corpse. And so we're not talking about, we're not doing this whole series on the doctrines of the Christian faith just to gloat in the fact that we have good and accurate doctrine or to talk about it in some erudite way. No. We're talking about it so it leads us to a life of sanctification and freedom from sin. That is the purpose of all of this. If it's, if it's not producing sanctification and it's not producing the intended outcome, then why are we even talking about it? One more example. In the Old Testament, there was this tabernacle that they, the Israelites built on the wilderness. And <clears throat> near the end of Exodus, it, it gives very detailed instructions, instructions on how to build this thing. And when we get to the very end of Exodus, it tells us why it was built. Why did the Israelites go through the process of making sure they had every measurement, every detail set up properly in this tabernacle? In Exodus 40, verse 34, that the glory of the Lord filled the temple for the glory of the Lord to fill the temple. They built a tabernacle down to the exact detail, to the millimeter, to the color, to the every thread, exact. Why? So the glory of God would fill it. Without the glory of God, without the fire of God falling in that place, waste of time, waste of time. Just a big fancy tent in the wilderness where people are like, cool, Moving on, because it can't change lives. But when you have the presence of God resting on it, oh, that changes everything. That's where it's about. <clears throat> and in that same way, proper doctrine is absolutely good. It is right and it is needed. But it is needed for a specific purpose. That is to make us more like Christ. To make us like Jesus. That he would radiate his glory from within us. I mean, this is what we talk about often. Our vision statement is to present to Christ a radiant church ready for his return. This is how we do it. When we allow the doctrine to sink in and transform our lives, that we now radiate the glory of God. That when people look at us, they see the life of God in us. They may not know what we believe. They may disagree with what we believe, but they won't be able to deny the kindness, the gentleness, the love, the patience, the courage, the truth. It'll be there. The life of Christ will be there. This is how we become a radiant church. We allow the spirit of God to fill us, the temple of the Holy Spirit, that's us right now, and transform us. That's where it begins. You know, for me personally, when, when God began to open my eyes to some of these truths, um, I, the first thing that happened for me was I began to see sin in a very different light. 
the seriousness of sin. And it was probably a decade ago, about, about 2014, it was around the time when there was like a tiny little Ebola scare. I don't remember this. This was like, I don't know. I was watching the news too much or something. But I do remember reading that story and like, okay, whatever. But then one day I'm in uh, my living room with my roommates at the time. And for some reason, I'm just on the couch looking at the front door. And this thought just drops in my head, which I know now is the Lord. And it was just this thought and imagery of what if that door opened and someone with Ebola walked in? What would I do? And of course, the answer is really simple. I'd be out the back door quickly. <laughs> like I would not be in this room right now. And immediately the Lord spoke to me. And he's like, you don't treat sin that way. And it really, I mean, it, it changed my life. It's, it set me on a journey. I was like, wow, you're right, God. With, he, with someone who's got a sickness, which is not nearly as deadly as sin, I would be like, stay away. But in my own life back then, it was like, I would tolerate a few th- dirty thoughts. I would be okay with telling a little lie here and there. I'd be okay with having a bad attitude or complaining. It didn't really bother me. That was the thing. So a little, little white lie, it didn't even prick my conscience. I was like, yeah, it's not a big deal. I was like, whoa, I've missed it. And I repented. And you wouldn't find me near someone who had Ebola. And I was like, well, why would I allow this little thought in? What's more dangerous for my being? Yeah, that, that little thought. <clears throat> we cannot take sin lightly. This is not to say you have to be delivered the very instant you have uh, proper doctrine. If you don't, if you sin again, that's wrong. No, it's to say your attitude has changed. You used to love it, now you hate it. You, again, I've met, I mentioned it earlier. You may struggle for another 10 years. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying, but do you weep over that? Does it bother you? If it does, I can tell you, you will find freedom one day. Come on. I can tell you, if it doesn't bother you, I can also tell you the opposite. You will never be free. We need to see the seriousness of sin. And if you wanna know how serious it actually is, that little thought, that little complaining, that little love of money, that whatever it is, you look at what it cost Jesus. We need to look no further than the cross. That thought killed Jesus. We don't say it that way, but that is the truth. That look put Jesus on the cross. <clears throat> That's a big deal. We wouldn't take that lightly. I'll get the band to come up. I'll wrap it up in a little more encouraging tone, hopefully. <laughs> Thanks for enduring with me. You know, my heart for for this church, again, I love you guys. I love what God is doing here. I want to present to Christ a radiant bride ready for his return. And when we see sin and life the way Jesus saw it and talk about it the way he did, we, you know, that's that's another smudge rubbed off of the bride. I'm like, okay, she's getting there. (laughs) We're getting there. We know the truth and the truth will set us free from sin. And for those of us who are born again, who are truly followers of Jesus, we find ourselves in this battle with sin and over time we can get pretty weary of it. We get weary of being defeated by sin and get sick and tired of it. And I don't mean sick and tired of your circumstance. I don't mean sick and tired of someone else. I don't mean sick and tired of the church. No, when you get sick and tired of yourself, when you get sick and tired of how you keep responding that way, or you keep thinking that when you're sick and tired of finally, of, of, of living a defeated life, that is when you will hear the voice of Jesus say, come to me. 
all you who are weary, heavy laden, and sick and tired of being defeated by sin, come to me and I will give you rest for your souls. I will give it to you when you're sick and tired of it. Until then, I can't really give you much. Your hands are closed. When you're done, we say, I'm done with this. I'm sick of it. Our hands are open and Jesus says, I have much to give you because I am gentle and humble at heart and you will find rest for your souls. I am gentle and humble. And we all know that God gives grace to the humble. It's because Jesus is humble that he has the grace and the power of God to help us overcome sin. And so the solution to the problem of sin is, is definitely, yes, is first seeing the severity of it. But secondly, it is to truly come to Jesus empty-handed saying, I've tried to do it on my own. It's not really working. It doesn't work. We read it in John 8. I'm gonna read it again. It says, so if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. It's the son of God who has to set us free. Galatians 5.1 says, it's for freedom that Christ sets us free. It's the son, it's Jesus, it's Christ. He sets us free. A prisoner can't set himself free. He needs rescue. And if we've been beaten down by sin, if we're in that prison of sin, we need rescue. And that's where we come to Jesus. We cry out to Jesus. And we say, Lord, I wanna be done with these chains. I want, the, I want them gone. I want the prison door open. You came to open the prison doors. Open this prison door for me, Lord. And he will do it. He will do it. If we acknowledge our sin, if we repent, but then we put our faith in Christ, our effort, our energy, everything that we have to do and bring, is, it's, it's on him. He does the work. He can give us victory. This is how we become overcomers. And so I, I'm, I love talking about doctrine and theology and going deep in that realm. But hear my heart, if it doesn't produce life, we are wasting our time. There's a lot of... <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous arguments and quabbles and squirrels and all, you know, online and all over the place about doctrine. I'm like, what? That's good. It's good to have a right doctrine. Right, do you speak gently to your wife at home? Okay. And what's the point? Let's stand. The truth is meant to set us free, church. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's come to set us free. And in that freedom, we can finally do the thing which our heart longs for. And that is to worship God in spirit and in truth. We finally find freedom to smile and to say, God has set me free. What do I do with that freedom? The thing that I was born to do, to love him, to worship him, to bow at his feet, to give him praise, to give him thanks. You know, it's the, what is the purpose of everything? To worship God and glorify Him forever, and to enjoy Him forever. That can be done when we find freedom in Jesus. And so what we're gonna do, I'm gonna invite some life group leaders up. Um, you can make your way on up right now. And then, you know, I'm gonna pray and we'll close this out in a minute. And if there's just some lagging, nagging sin, that you're like, I don't, I want to believe, help my own belief. I want to be free, but I don't have the words. You don't even have to mention it to him. Just say, can you pray for me? Something going on, please pray for me. I want the power of Jesus in my life. I have agreed and I thought that was enough in my mind. I said, I agree to that, 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 that. But my life had nothing to show for it. 
come up here for prayer. Again, going back to the doctrine of the church, we're not meant to do it alone. You're actually meant to have people lay hands and pray for you and strengthen you by the power of the Holy Spirit that flows within them. For everyone else, I want us just to respond in thankfulness and in worship that he has set us free. And if there's something that you know, it's like, man, I'm still not free from there. Don't don't be disheartened. Take courage. Because it's not up to you and you alone. It's up to Jesus. You just got to stand where he stands and be with him. Yoke yourself to Jesus and he will give you rest. It won't feel like such a burden. Oh, I got to get over this thing. No, it's light. It's easy because he's gentle and he is humble. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that sets us free. And Lord, we want to be a church that is set free, free from sin, free to fellowship and commune with the God that made us. Jesus, thank you for your blood that has broken the chains over our lives. And we want to see, we want to step into that freedom right now today. We don't, we don't want to miss a single day of freedom that you've provided for us. Would you transform us by the power of your spirit, Lord? We love you, God, and we respond and worship you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer, come on up.